0: This episode was recorded on Waradjuri Nation. I pay my respects to their elders and all First Nations people and their ongoing fight for freedom and justice in this country. The government isn't the people. Even if you just say, look, we're batting for you, we're on your side,
1: it's something it might help them get out of bed in the morning. You do seem to have a little bit of a radical edge, a bit politically feisty, maybe. It's all very well to sit back and think, I don't like what's going on. It's sort of almost a comfort in a way to feel that you're doing something. Something's better than nothing.
0: How do we find true meaning and connection in life? I'm on a quest meet people who have found connection and meaning in their life, people who make time for something that has value and purpose or makes them feel joyful and alive. I'm convinced that through meeting these people, I'll find one thing I can be doing to bring more connection and meaning into my life. So I quit my job, bought a pop-up camping trailer, and I'm heading off on a journey around Australia to see what other people are doing. My name is Kai, and I'm on a journey towards connection. In this episode, I travelled to Griffith in the New South Wales Riverina. Griffith is apparently known as the Food Bowl of Australia and is not home to the mafia. Why would you even think that? For this episode, I met Will, the retiree who turned activist for refugee rights, who also challenged my assumptions about older people in regional Australia. So, I'm in Griffith. It's cold, definitely not as cold as it was in Canberra. I haven't been in Griffith long, but it's it's got a real kind of, in a way, a typical Australian country town feel in that you've got the the main street lined by shops, big open roads, a couple of sports fields, single story brick houses with perfectly manicured lawns. It's a big town. It's a lot bigger than a lot of other Australian regional towns. It's got a population of over 27,000 people. So that's quite big. And the, the main street was very busy. Cars were crawling along and it's Wednesday. I think it's famous for what? Apparently the mafia is here. Didn't see any signs of them, though I probably shouldn't sit in my car for too long in case the police come and knock on my door. I also found more cultural diversity than I had expected. There was a lot of Asian, Sri Lankan, I even noticed an Afghani restaurant, so that was pretty cool. I'm gonna go to Will's house soon. Will, who was so generous, offering me a bed in her house which although I'm loving staying in my camper and I haven't been camping long enough to need a break, it's still really nice to stay in her house and get to know her and her partner and the work that they do. So yeah, we'll see what Wheel's like.
1: So how would you describe yourself? I would describe myself as a person who likes to be busy, likes to help people and, you know, just feel that I'm doing something useful most of the time except when I'm busy reading books and I don't do anything useful at all.
0: You're retired now?
1: Yeah, I'm retired.
0: How long ago did you retire? I retired a long
1: time ago. I retired at the end of 2005. I retired early because I thought I was going to die in the job, so I thought I'd get out.
0: What were you doing? I was principal of a
1: high school. I was at the same school, actually, for 16 years altogether, uh, last seven as principal. Mm. But I just got to the stage where I thought... If I go any longer with this, I mightn't be around
0: for very long and I have things to do. Principal sounds like a tough job.
1: It was, and it was it was very tough. So where did you grow up? For the first 10 years of my life, I lived on a farm, a wheat and sheep farm out between a little place called Grong, Grong and Ardlethen, out on the Newell Highway in the Riverina. And I did most of my primary school education by correspondence and then... I was sent away to boarding school when I was just eleven.
0: What decade was this?
1: 1961. So you went to boarding school at eleven. How was that? It was really tough because I we had lots of, of friends around the farm, but no, hadn't hadn't been at school since I was in um, basically kindergarten, and so had no real concept of even being in a classroom. My mother had been an infants teacher, so she was well, they'd both been teachers before Dad went farming. So I had, not, I had absolutely no, no concept of classrooms or really getting on with other people you know, 24-7. So it was, it was hard.
0: And so you and Ray are both teachers and both of your parents were teachers?
1: Well, right on my side, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. Fascinating. Yes, yeah, so and it was the only thing I was never going to do, ever. <laughs> so what happened?
0: <laughs> well, I
1: did my degree and I purposefully did not apply for a teacher's scholarship to do dip ed because I was never going to be a teacher. And I was going to do a traineeship with, it wasn't David Jones, it was called Grace Brothers at the mm. time. I got to the final interview and I was told that, of course, I realised that there'd be a lot of after hours work for blah, blah, blah. And I thought, I'm not going to do after hours work. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't for me. And then my parents said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, oh, I'll think of something. And they said, why don't you go and do deep ed while you're thinking about it? So then I did dip ed and then, you know, get a posting to a school and that's it.
0: So for someone who didn't want to be a teacher and then obviously spent most of your life teaching, any regrets?
1: No, no. The only thing was when I was still at school, I thought I'd really like to work in a chemist shop. So my regret is I didn't ever work in a chemist shop, but I've got over that.
0: Can I ask how old you are? You don't have to answer. No, I'm seventy-two. Wow, nice. You might have another thirty years oh left in you. <laughs> I hope not. I really do hope not.
1: A quick heart attack would be good. Not today. Not tomorrow, the... <laughs> always tomorrow. But tomorrow would be fine. Not while I'm still here. <laughs> no, no. Two children. They were born in Kunaberramun, but they both left home as soon as they finished school, you know, to go to uni and pursue careers elsewhere one of the drawbacks of living in country town.
0: And did they come back or did they stay away? Stayed away.
1: 32 years we've lived in Griffiths. This was a settlement area back around 2000, 2006, 7, eight. A lot of Afghan women, but a lot of those Afghan families have now gone. But there is still a, a lot of the Pashto women are still here and they would have to be one of the most closeted groups
0: in our community anyway. I did uh, notice how culturally diverse Griffith was and it really surprised me and I'm not sure if that's because I had an assumption that regional areas were not so diverse but I wasn't sure if it was particularly Griffith but I suppose it, it makes sense if it was a settlement area. And it's interesting, when we came here
1: 32 years ago, it wasn't nearly as diverse. There's a huge underlay of Italian migrants who came here straight after the war. And 32 years ago, if you walked down the street, you would hear people speaking Italian. You don't hear that anymore because another couple of generations have gone past. But that is, that is still an underlying facet of, of the Griffith community. So is it true that the Mafia are here? <laughs> you, you want me to answer that?
0: Are you going to end up with a horse's head in your bed if you do? I
1: <laughs> I don't know anything about it, but yes. They
0: probably won't make it to the podcast. <laughs> I'm
1: just genuinely curious. Well, turn, turn that
0: off and I'll tell you. <laughs> so you retired early. What did you think retirement would be like?
1: Well, I think I thought I was going to spend a lot of time sitting around reading the Sydney Morning Herald every day, which I don't do as much as I should. But I was lucky. I did read some books about retirement after I retired. And I think the main thing out of all of that was you need to set yourself up for retirement before you retire. You don't retire and then decide, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. So I really don't do a lot different to what I did before I retired. So I played golf for a number of years and love playing golf. I have started playing bowls, but I haven't played bowls for a while. And then how did you find the um, Rural Australians for Refugees? Well, I, we have some friends who live in Victoria and Mari was the national president of Rural Australians for Refugees. Rural Australians for Refugees started in 2002, I think after Tampa, and it started basically to let the government know that it wasn't just in a city... Latte sippers who were going to support refugees. You know that there were people right across the whole of Australia who felt the same way. So it was set up to basically represent rural Australians. Anyway, Mari asked us if we would go to the national conference, which was in Albury, and we thought about it. I said, Yeah, I'd like to go to that because I think for a long time I'd had huge amount of unease about the way we were treating asylum seekers and refugees. And I thought it'd be interesting to know more about it. So we went to the conference and it was absolutely amazing. On the way home, I just said to Ray, look, I really feel I want to do something and all I can do really is try and set up a group in Griffith, but I can't do it by myself. I'll need you to back me up. I said, yeah, that's fine. So here's our, we don't have minutes. is our note taker, He's our official note taker. and He's been to, I think, every meeting. That's how it started. Because I'd been here for quite a while and there were still a whole lot of people I knew from work and from outside work, we just started off with a group of people that we knew and invited them to a meeting here to start off with.
0: Everybody said, great idea, let's go for it. So that's how it started. And so finding the people that you knew to start this group, was refugees and asylum seekers something that you ever spoke about over coffee? Was it like a discussion that you usually had? How how did you know who would be interested in these rights? Not
1: specifically, but you sort of know the people who are going to be interested in those things. So that's how it started and that's how it's gone on. And we have probably about, I think we've got about 50
0: people on our email list. You don't really want all those people at a meeting. And so the 12 people that regularly show up to meetings, what do you think attracts them? I
1: think The same has attracted me, and that is that it's all very well to sit back and think, oh, I don't like what's going on. It's sort of almost a comfort in a way to feel that you're doing something. Something's better than nothing. You know Julia Baird. She wrote a book called Phosphorescence. Mm. There was a fantastic chapter in that book about why do you bang your head against a brick wall forever? And she was saying because maybe in 30 years' time something might change. Things might change after you die, but you've got to have a go. I'm not the sort of person who likes putting myself sort of out there. So I I find that quite uncomfortable at times, but I think, well, it has to be done, so you do it. So can you describe some of the work that the um, group in Griffith do? We do do a lot of advocacy through letter writing, and there are times when people will write their own individual letters. We try to educate our community by writing letters to the editor, and some of them have been published, and that's good. And we had two letters published in the lead-up to the election, so that was that was excellent. There have been several campaigns in the time that we've been going. Uh, one of them was Kids Off Nauru, So we had a a vigil down the street for that and, uh, you know, gave out information, that sort of thing. Had rallies down the street and had banners and given out information. And then before the election, we had postcards, basically just looked at the main policies affecting asylum seekers and refugees with just a tick and a flick for the various parties. And we gave those out. For three of the four years that we've been going, we've had a film screening as another way of trying to educate the community. We've got another one coming up on the 28th of June called Scattered People, which is about the power of music to bring people together
0: and healing power of music as well. What do you see as being the biggest issue that asylum seekers are facing today or what is the actual concern that you are working against, working for?
1: I think the fact that they've been demonised, the way the government, just by the careful use of language has made sure that people think anyone who arrives by boat is an illegal immigrant even though they have every right to seek asylum and get here any way that they can. Because they haven't been allowed, of course, to see anybody as a person, so many of the Australian public just see them as you know people who are illegally trying to get to Australia and they, they should be sent home and we should have nothing to do. With them. And I think any, anything that we can do to either change community attitudes or try to get the other point of view out to government is, is worthwhile doing, because in the end they are all people, but it doesn't suit the government for anyone to see them in that way.
0: In general, when you're public facing and you're handing out information, flyers, etc., how do most people respond? What's the general response in the community like?
1: Most of the response when we've had rallies down in the main street has been fairly positive. And, you know, people will take the information and, and talk. But there's one Facebook group who is obviously, I'd say, the nearest thing locally to white supremacists that we've got, who, after one of our rallies, you know, had, had on their Facebook page, we should send them all back Australia for Australians and all the rest of it. And when we were giving out the pamphlets and, and postcards before the election, all we did was say to people, would you take this information to read? I said, it's not a how-to-vote card, it's just, could you just read what they most people would say, oh, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. I think everybody who was giving out things, that they had one experience like this, but I, one guy that I spoke to, I nearly didn't, because I thought, I know I can tell what reaction I'm going to get here, but, now i better be brave. And I, so I went up to him and said, look, would you, would you take this to read? You know, it's about, about refugees and asylum seekers. And he said, no, I won't. He said, we should shoot them all. You expect you're going to get something like that from somebody. But most people were willing to take the information. I didn't see them put up in the garden. In they might have.
0: What do you ultimately want to see if you got what you were working towards? What would a better today or a better future look like for asylum seekers and refugees in this country?
1: I'm not suggesting that we need to bring an open arms approach to everybody who wants to come in, but I think there needs to be some more logical way of dealing with people who are seeking asylum here but I think what we are are looking for is for all the people who have no permanency and no feeling of hope about anything at the moment that they are given a pathway to get permanent residency and that the people who are in 505 as of this week that are still in detention offshore that they have somewhere to go some way of giving people hope. This is something I haven't even mentioned at all. One of the other things that we do, we have close ties with a person in Centrelink who works with asylum seekers and refugees who come here. She is constantly looking for people to help those guys do their paperwork to try and get their families here, which is very difficult when they haven't got permanency themselves, but still. So six of us have volunteered to do that. And that is a hugely time intensive thing. A guy called Michael Rowan and I started working with one guy who I think he approached the national group and said, you know, is there anyone in Griffith who can help me? I don't think he has any chance at all, but all he can do is give him some hope and say at least we can write a letter to our local member or the Minister for Immigration or whatever. But he came from the Swat Valley in Pakistan, which, if you go back, say, 2008, was an area where they were saying, yes, you are definitely needing asylum, whereas the government is now saying anybody can go back there, that's fine. This guy's situation was that he and his brother were both working with a group who were trying to tell people, don't work with the Taliban. Of course, as soon as the Taliban heard about that, they're they're marked men and they they were told they were going to be killed. So I think they went to South Africa first, worked there and were told it was okay to go home. So they went home, but the Taliban were after them again. So they went somewhere else. So they both have families at home, but they only actually got here in 2018. They want to stay here and then they want their families to come too. But I, don't, I don't know what hope they've got. So the first thing we'll do with them, I said, what we'll do is we'll get your immigration lawyers details and talk to him or her about is it a good idea for us to get involved and support him through writing to people or not and go from there? I think any person who's here, no matter how hopeless the situation, if they know that there are Australians who think differently, it's a bit like Russia or anywhere else, isn't it? The government isn't the people. Even if you just say, look, we're batting for you, we're on your side, it's something that might help them get out of bed in the morning.
0: Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And how do they respond to you?
1: They are so thankful and just somebody's taken the time to talk to them listen to their story and i mean if you can help with the paperwork that's fantastic too but you know because i I don't know how anybody fills in an 842 form if they don't have a lot of language skills (laughs) it's almost impossible so to have have that help you know they they really are appreciative i
0: think those forms are deliberately difficult i've got a university degree and i think i would be overwhelmed
1: you're put off by the fact that, you know, if you get one thing wrong, it hasn't been the same as what they filled in on Christmas Island or somewhere. They can just say, well,
0: we're not going to have anything to do with that. So this podcast is really me looking for what brings people meaning and connection in their life. How do you think this has brought you meaning and connection in your life? I think because it was an issue that
1: has been on my mind for a long time, the fact that I can do some very tiny thing, try and make the situation better, gives me meaning. And probably also, instead of just feeling guilty, you can feel a little bit more positive about yourself because you're doing something. It's just being selfish, but that's okay. Quite a few of the people in the group I did know before, through various other things, but I've met some new ones as well, and I think every connection you have in a community is really important and it's good, good for the community and, and good for every person. One of the things everybody has to do is keep socially engaged. And well, if you ask my husband, he'd say, yes, I'm very, <laughs> I'm very socially engaged. But I think it's important to do what you can and be out there spreading a message. Whatever the message is you feels important. It makes me feel good and makes me feel connected but I, I was probably lucky in that I didn't really need any more connectedness. I had plenty, but I just thought I needed to to do something, so you just
0: put it on top of everything else. I'm going to say something that I don't mean to be offensive at all. There is a stereotype that older people, regional people tend to be less socialist and tend to, you know, not be as politically engaged or, you know, interested in human rights. But that's not the case for you and for Your whole group in Griffith. What do you think about that stereotype and what would you say to people that hold that particular stereotype? There
1: are an awful lot of people in rural areas who are extremely conservative and racist and almost misogynistic but wherever you go you will find that there are people who are not that way and that was the whole idea of rural Australians in the first place hey, everybody in country areas is not totally oblivious to
0: what's going on and couldn't care less. You do seem to me to have a little bit of a radical edge, a bit political, a bit feisty maybe, in what I would call a good way. Have you always been interested in human rights? Have you always been
1: political? I think I've always been interested in human rights. I think I've always felt that I have I have been lucky and that, you know, I had an, an education. I guess I've always felt it would be good to pay back sometime. so when we went to Albury, Ray's job took him away. He was often away for whole weeks at a time. So I'd be going to work all day, picking up the kids, doing schoolwork all night. I was looking for something that might have been for me, but was also something for the community. There was something about I thought now this is something that you could get your teeth into and do a bit for the community and do something that wasn't just work or kids. So I joined up. That's really when it started. I guess been in the middle of it ever since. I think the other thing too is just, just as far as the community is concerned, the people who come in, who are having such a tough time, you don't see them. They work, they don't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of English skills, so they basically talk to the people that they can talk to. They're not, not a presence that people have
0: much idea about. I asked you before what you hoped for, and now I'm going to ask what you actually think is the future for asylum seekers and refugees coming to Australia, or who are already here?
1: With the new government still pursuing the offshore processing and that sort of thing, I don't see much hope for anybody trying to come in now, but I do hold out a hope that there will be positive change for those people already here. And I think, you know, for some of them, even if they ended up having to go home, even that would be some sort of certainty, rather than just being left. It takes a year for a letter to be answered, even if it is then. And if you don't have somebody who's batting for you on the ground, then it might be two years.
0: To tonight's meeting <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoy it out of the 12 core people who tend to show up mm. can you describe them as a whole
1: people with with big hearts and a big social conscience who want to see change and you know and are prepared to do something about it
0: good news I Ring Russia shut up, who's been very quiet, is really depressed um, because, yeah. he applied for his partner visas in 2015. R- would like us to write an, to the new Minister for Immigration, so I'm just asking you if you're happy for us to write another letter. He wants to tell his whole story because you know, he's just so upset about everything and really so struggling. So is
1: everybody happy that we just write a letter asking where is? his application is up to them. Scattered people, Tuesday the 28th. It's got a few little jobs we might be able to fill some of them tonight. Now on the list from last year we had flyers around town. Do we need to do that? Is it worth doing?
2: I kind of think it is, because at least if people know something's happening, it's good for a rural Australian refugee to have their name on something. I'm happy to put some out if you... Fantastic. Is it worth
1: sending them to the service clubs?
2: Have you got the email
1: addresses for the others, the other Rotary Clubs? Would you do that? Thank you. And apart from that, it's really just up to us to sort of think about all the people we know who we could just send it to, even if they really don't want to know about it.
0: Why do you come to these meetings? Two main reasons, because the standard you walk by is the standard you accept, so have got to do something. And for a more humanitarian world, caring about people, you know, we've got to make Australia more humanitarian.
2: And has anything changed since coming to these meetings? Every little bit helps. If you don't do anything, no one's going to know about it. But if we just do something, people go, oh, it's those people again. Sooner or later they'll go, Well, oh, what were they doing? So then, you know, you're sort of educating as well and promoting, which is really important because I think we need to. We need to be a voice for some of those people who are voiceless. I think uh, Australia has been in breach of its human rights obligations by the way that uh, they put people on the islands. And so they call it detention. It is really jail. Or well, worse,
0: yeah. you, don't get, you don't get treated as badly in jail as True. you do on the yeah. islands.
2: Oh. Will said, that at least you have a timeline if you're in jail, you know when you might be out, but uh, yes, when you just hang around forever. And you also have education in jail too, that we don't do when people are in detention, like oh. they just, from what I understand, sit around and kind of have a bit of a talk, but there's programs in jail for making yeah. sure people can actually come back into the community. They're armed for the future. We don't do that for detention centres, do we?
0: After meeting Will, I decided to catch up with my friend Janet, who I would also consider to be quite the social justice advocate and troublemaker. I was thinking, who do I know in my life who's a strong advocate, and you're the first person that came to mind. Were you surprised that I asked you? Would you consider
3: yourself to be an advocate, or am I just making this up? No, you're definitely not making it up, Kai. I am honoured that you thought of me first. That's really lovely. I do see myself as an advocate. Being a social worker for nearly 25 years now, that is my job. But I also feel the passion around me for other things. And I think it's about the way I was brought up. I think it's about the passion that my mum felt for these kinds of things as well. She was a trade unionist. She was a feminist. And I think it stepped through into my blood, into my DNA. So what sort of issues are you an advocate for these days? The environment's one of my big passions. Making sure people get treated right is also a big passion of mine. So whether that be in the LGBTQI um, space or young people, but also, you know, developers are not treating people right when they are going to build a road that, tramples through a community.
0: So what does advocacy actually look like? Like, what do advocates do? Do you go to protests? Do you write letters to MPs? Like, what do you actually do?
3: Yeah, you do all of that, and as much of that as you can, given the time constraints that you have. And sometimes I do love actually going to a protest because you feel like you're with others that are on the right side of history, you're doing the right thing and that always feels good to know that you're not the only one advocating for this thing or this issue. But if you can't go to protests, you write letters, you talk to MPs, you talk to your neighbours, you talk to people.
0: I used to go to a lot of protests because I used to go for that reason, not because I necessarily felt like the protest was going to make big changes, I guess we ultimately hope that it does. But I used to go because, yeah, I felt empowered being around like-minded people and when you're passionate about an issue and you see that there's hundreds or thousands of other people passionate, yeah, it just it brings you hope and it makes you a little less jaded and a little less cynical.
3: That's right and I think you've always got to not be cynical where you feel like you're getting cynical and you feel like there's no hope. That's when you should connect with people and really try and make a difference.
0: Do you think groups like Will and her crew and the work that they're doing, do you think they actually make a difference?
3: I think it sounds amazing, the work they're doing, because the empowerment that those refugees or those people settling in Griffith would have felt would have been amazing to have people actually doing things with them and for them and alongside them.
0: I'm going to admit to my own narrow-mindedness perhaps. Whenever I think of advocates I think of people in a city. I think of busy younger people. It was just really nice being challenged by meeting Will and her crew who are retirees, who are from a regional area. That in itself I found quite powerful because I think there is this divisiveness in politics. You know the inner city latte sippers or whatever and it's like well first of all they drink lattes in regional country towns now (laughs) and second of all it's not
3: just a city issue this is a national issue I agree with you it's not just the cities and you know politicians will always label people who can get to a, a protest at town hall as those troublemakers and I'm really glad it sounds like Will and her band of people there are really doing some good stuff and that's amazing Because you don't look like a typical troublemaker, but I I know you, we work together. You are a typical troublemaker. (laughs) You just don't necessarily look like one instantly because you don't wear anarchist (laughs) T-shirts. I'm a little bit of a troublemaker. I'm pretty proud of that, really, to be honest. And I guess then... There's the surprise, isn't it, that, you know, you can still continue to be an advocate despite how well you're doing in your life. And I am extremely fortunate to be where I am today. And I want to make a difference for other people. And it's not until you realise it could be you, it could change also suddenly. So I will always be an advocate for other people less fortunate than myself.
0: One of the things I like about protests are the signs. Mm -hmm. They're usually funny, interesting, intelligent. I'm going to a protest tomorrow, a little bit stuck.
3: I want a sign Mm. because it's the best part of a protest. What should my sign say? I think it would have to be something about having a home and being welcomed in a home. I'm not quite sure of the words on that yet. I think you do need to tap into the fact that people have actually needed to come here for a reason not because they want to, like it's not been a choice. So I'm not sure on the words, but I would say something linking with the need for a home in a terrible situation. I have to admit, I'm not very good at coming up with signs um, for protests, but the best one I saw recently was a 14-year-old neighbour of mine. She is quite shy and she said, you know it's bad when the introverts are protesting. (laughs) So that would be a good one. I I couldn't possibly hold that because everyone knows I'm not an introvert. So my podcast
0: is about me looking for what brings people meaning and connection. Has advocacy done that for you? Is this Does this bring you meaning and connection?
3: Yeah, it does. I mean, I don't feel like I would really be quite the same without it, to be honest. And I connected with people in my community because of protests. And I wouldn't be the same person without it. It does give me meaning in my life, you know, to be part of this community. So... I'm trying to make a
0: poster for tomorrow's protest, but I really don't know what to say. Like, I want to be clever and funny and strike to the heart and, you know, have something really impactful, but I have no idea what to write on a poster. I'm actually Googling it, and there's some pretty good ones. One that came up on Google that I really like says, For those who've come across the seas, we've boundless planes to share, which really works if you know the Australian National Anthem. I don't know. I don't know whether I'm going to come up with anything particularly witty or clever. So I think I will stick to the home theme. Maybe just something like everybody has a right to a safe home. It's not clever, it's not funny, but I believe it's true. And then the other issue is it's supposed to be raining actually supposed to be pouring, which I'm worried will be a deterrent to many people. Which sucks, because I understand why people don't want to stand in the rain protesting. Not only is it uncomfortable, but might have illnesses, children, there's lots of reasons. But the more bodies on the ground at the protest, the better it would be. The louder the voice, the stronger the message, the more empowered people will feel. But I'm going to go, rain, hell or shine.
3: Thank you everyone for coming out and I've got to say it's wonderful that we're standing here as refugees and their supporters and that so many of the people who are here today are here living free in the community because this movement fought for them to be here, which is excellent.
0: So I'm here. Uh, It's pouring down. It's absolutely bucketing down. Uh, I honestly thought maybe I'd show up and I'd be the only person here. I uh, actually thought they were going to cancel it, but they didn't cancel it, and I'm also not the only person here. It's a lot more than I thought, considering it has not stopped raining in 12 hours. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty great crowd. There's, it's very multicultural. I'd say there's a lot of people here who were either asylum seekers and refugees themselves or have family who are. Uh, But then you get a lot of other people who look like they might just be supporters, and I'm making some gross generalisations, I know that, Uh, and a lot of older people of retiree age. So there we go, my narrow assumption that it was inner-city millennials or Gen X or Z or whoever I thought it was, Uh, is wrong. There's a lot of older people here. So far there's speeches from both advocates as well as from personal experience as well. So they're very moving, they're very inspiring. I'm gonna go back, stand in the rain, and listen to some more speeches. So I don't wanna miss out too much, but uh, I'm really glad I came. Despite everybody being absolutely drenched and probably grossly uncomfortable, there's a really good energy in the air as well. So what brings you here today? My support for the extra, for the permanent visas for the refugees. And what is it about refugees and asylum seekers that you feel passionate about? I just
3: really sympathise
0: with the fact they left their country, they left everything and everyone they knew to come for a better life for them and their families and we should give that to them. The rain didn't scare you off? No. I thought one hour of discomfort might just add to a cause that could bring a good life for other people. It is true when you put it that way, it's only one hour of discomfort for the yes. discomfort that they go through to get here. How come you're here today? What brought you here?
2: Everyone have the difference issue, difference thing. But everyone have the reason why they came here. Everyone have issue. Because without issue, who gonna come to take risks for this come to board? No one can do like that. That's why I came here. I know this is happened, maybe I can die. But still, I take Because it's still a nice country, we are thinking we have something good future for here. But still, we are suffering. I don't know what the government are thinking. I hope the government can understand. What
0: can people like me, your average Australians, to do to help you guys? They
2: can feel to us our pain. Without family, is very hard is so it's very hard to survive to life without family. Government don't ask to us, at least you can ask to him and we can share some pain for us. Our pain we just share, little big feel good.
0: If you didn't catch that, he said you can share some pain for us, our pain. We share a little bit and feel good. This podcast was created by me, Kai Noonan. Audio production by Harry Hughes. Script editing and advising by Adam Hughes. Check us out on Instagram. Just search Towards Connection.